Hello, good morning, and welcome. It's Friday, the 4th of October, 2019, and this is episode 119. So I got a pretty cool email the other day. I don't usually give these things too much credit, but it seems pretty legit, so I'm pretty happy to share it along. Uh, it turns out that, well, there's a there's a newsreader website called Feedspot, and I guess they've got a listing of the top 10 autonomous vehicle audio podcasts um, that are worth subscribing to and listening to in 2019. And, well, I'm pretty pleased to say that not only did I make that list, I'm number one on that list. And it's a pretty, pretty awesome list. I mean, I'm surrounded by some pretty influential, pretty prestigious people and other podcasts. Um, for example, coming in at the number two spot, uh, former UCLA and USC professor, Dr. Lance Elliott, his podcast, Self-Driving Cars. Um, what's, an, what's another one here that I know? Oh, Driverless. Driverless comes in at number five. If that sounds familiar, you'll remember that uh, I did a podcast with two of the attorneys at the Tucker Ellis Law Firm. They're the ones who produced this podcast, Driverless. So that's pretty cool to see there. Let's see. Autonocast. That's the one produced or at least hosted by Alex Roy. Yeah, you know what's missing on this list is Greg Rogers' Mobility Podcast. That's a fantastic podcast. I met with Greg in D.C. So yeah, this is a pretty uh, impressive impressive list of folks to share a top 10 list with. So I'm really quite pleased indeed. Yeah, this is over at the feedspot.com. Uh, well, I should say blog.feedspot.com. It's their top 10 autonomous vehicle podcast to subscribe and listen to in 2019. So yeah, there's that. Anyway, uh, let's see. Uh, just a quick friendly reminder, if you are also a fan of this podcast, don't forget, please, to continue to leave all the stellar reviews and five-star ratings over on Apple Podcasts. These do really help me quite a bit. Um, you can follow me, of course, on all social media at Autonomous Hogue. And yeah, I've got a Patreon page, which is now live. So head on over to patreon.com slash Autonomous Hogue if you'd like to be a supporter. And don't forget that gives you a chance to be a guest on this podcast, both as an audio guest, but also even on a future video episode. And you can get full produced by credits. Right. Let's carry on then, because today, what autonomous cars mean for downtown parking. Silicon Valley isn't really a fan of autonomous cars, weirdly enough. And an interesting discussion on TechCrunch that supposedly we're going to have self-flying cars before we have self-driving cars. All this right now. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. All right, so to kick things off today, let's talk about what autonomous cars will mean for downtown parking and really for city design as a whole. And 
not just city design, but indeed city function, the finances, everything about cities will be profoundly impacted as autonomous cars roll out, as it were, and uh, really start to take a uh, start to have a profound change on the way in which. Well, I was going to say how people live their lives. It's true. It does stand to primarily, at least it seems to be the case, that it'll primarily fast-track the further development of suburban living at the greatly increased cost of more cars commuting longer distances more of the time. But obviously the perceived benefit, although it is a bit misplaced, is that with autonomous vehicles, this long commute will no longer be a thing. And once they get to the city, then they don't even have to park. We've talked all about this quite a lot in the past. And if this sounds familiar, it's because there was this great study by the Boston Consulting Group working with the World Economic Forum, which suggested that if things stay as they are, then um, the influx of autonomous cars will increase what is it, traffic density and commensurate travel times by something like 5.6% in the next several years. Well, that was kind of the only study of its sort that I've really ever seen until now, because this this is pretty cool. So I actually want to link you to this to this article, and it'll be over at my, uh, at my website, markhoag.com, uh, in the show notes, in the episode notes. So the, the website is... So I actually never knew about this website. It's pretty cool. It's called City Metric. So they're at citymetric.com. The the article is titled Driverless Cars Could Spell the End for Downtown Parking and Cities Need to Plan Ahead. It's written by one Corey Harper. So so let's first kick off this discussion with a friendly reminder that parking uh, obviously takes a tremendous amount of land area in cities. Uh, researchers at my alma mater, UCLA, have said something in the range of 5 to 8% of urban land is entirely devoted just to curb parking in cities, and that parking coverage generally in downtown LA and in Houston represents something like 81% and 57% respectively of total urban area. This is astonishing when you think about it. Um, I'm not going to dive too much into the economics it seems, I think, pretty self-explanatory. It's pretty clear to everybody that obviously parking brings in a massive amount of revenue for cities, not to mention the parking fines when you fail to make appropriate payments. What's really interesting about this discussion, though, is, okay, so there was a study that was conducted up in uh, in Seattle, in the Seattle region, I should say. And the study was looking to see how would, you know, what kind of driving dynamics, I should say parking dynamics, would autonomous vehicles prefer? Like, what would they actually choose to do if they were given the option? As between two choices, number one, park closer to the center of downtown where the vehicle's occupants were presumably dropped off at work, say, or would they indeed choose to prefer to drive to, you know, further outside of the city to less expensive or indeed even free parking? Well, as you can imagine, the study said, you know, produced results that really aren't that surprising, right? So obviously, uh, as the number of vehicles on the road increases, then obviously it's 
more expensive and more tricky and there's more limited parking in the center of the city. And so therefore, of course, it's more likely that the autonomous vehicles will obviously drive further outside the city to find less expensive and perhaps even free parking. And of course, there's the option they may just simply go all the way home. Um, you know, why park in the city at all at some point, right? So this is obviously very much in line with what the BCG study uh, concluded with the Boston study. Um, so what this goes to show then, obviously, is that effectively what's going to happen is that, well, you know, if you carry this to its logical conclusion, uh, autonomous vehicles are simply not going to park in downtowns anymore. So this is kind of good, but also brings with it its own slew of problems, right? So two, two primary problems then, well, I should say two primary points. One of them is the benefit, which is that, of course, it's going to free up a lot of land space in urban cores. This is, of course, great, full stop. The downside, of course, is the economic loss to the cities from no longer having all that parking revenue and, of course, parking fine revenue. There is, of course, the third point, which is that now not only is it going to massively increase housing sprawl outside of cities, but, of course, as we just discussed, it's going to increase traffic on the roads generally because of all this increased sprawl outside the cities. And as we discussed in, let's see, just a few episodes back, it seems to be the case, at least intuitively, that if you're going to have a massive increase in demand for suburban living, since, well, autonomous cars will make your commute effectively not really a commute in the agonizing sense of the word, well, then suddenly what was once relatively more affordable housing, say in suburbs rather than dense urban cores, well, now suddenly the housing prices are going to skyrocket, at least presumably, in the suburbs. So it kind of pegs the question, what's where will be relatively more affordable to live if both the urban cores are expensive and now suddenly the suburbs are much more expensive? Well, that's just not very good at all. And incidentally, I say this, um, I guess now is probably a good time to share with you that I'm very, very excited to let you know that next week I will be having a very special guest on the show Jordan Beal, he's the founder of Beal Real Estate down in San Diego. He knows a thing or two about real estate, and he'll be joining us to share his thoughts on the impact on the real estate market by autonomous vehicles in the coming decade or so. So very excited. We should have that episode with him live next Friday, the 11th, if all goes according to plan. So, so yeah, so this, this discussion, though, uh, about autonomous cars, right, so it's really interesting. And, and again, it kind of dives in really nicely, I, I think, to certain of the various solutions, right? What can be done, obviously, to help kind of reduce this, this increased traffic caused by basically, you know, truly driverless cars and, indeed, crucially, cars without any occupants whatsoever? So... One of the things that was discussed, obviously, was having some sort of a tax, right? And so this makes a lot of sense. The option that was suggested here in this study was that cities could implement some form, of course, of congestion pricing, right? So this would be, uh, as described in the article, a fee or a tax paid by users to enter the urban core of the city. Obviously, this is something we've discussed forever. A lot of cities in the world already do it. London does this and so on. But there's another suggestion here called a scaled VMT tax. So again, quoting from the article here, it's a fee for an AV to enter a downtown zone based on the number of miles that it's already traveled that day. 
So this is, I think, really quite interesting, actually. So the idea is to minimize the number of miles the vehicle travels, right? So so if, if it's going to be going further, then it's going to be taxed more. So this is basically a miles-driven tax. I get it. That makes sense. I don't really see the problem or the difference between this and what I've often suggested for quite some time, which is basically just an occupancy tax, right? So if you've got um, more occupants in the car, that should drive the tax rate lower and presumably even down to zero if you've got a completely full vehicle, because why not? Um, and, And then obviously if you've got a fully empty car, then of course that should be the maximum tax penalty. I don't really see why this can't be combined. I think you could have an occupancy tax combined with this so-called scaled VMT tax. That would kind of make a lot of sense to me. I know, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who don't like the tax approach to things. Um, You know, my major at UCLA was ultimately economics. And so I'm fully aware of the implications, both the pros and the cons for doing this. But I do think that there's certainly a valid argument to be made, and I don't really see a better solution. So I'm I'm gonna I'm kind of okay with this. I do think that a scaled VMT tax combined with an occupancy tax is the best way to go about things. Uh, if anyone has any better ideas, do let me know. At the very least, I think it's the least bad idea, and. This is the sort of thing that we need to kind of tackle before it becomes an issue, not after it becomes an issue. We want to make sure that as autonomous vehicles are deployed, that we kind of dynamically adjust for the increased traffic as it's occurring, not, say, five or ten years down the road when we think, oh, gosh, the roads are effectively undrivable. We should probably do something about that now. No, this is something that needs to be tackled from the get-go, and so I'm a huge fan of this Let's call it a dual tax system. Again, one based on occupancy and one based on miles traveled. So do let me know your thoughts. Don't forget you can reach out to me on Twitter at Autonomous Hogue by email and, of course, through my website at markhogue.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, so for this next segment, I am going to discuss yet another article to which I will link you in the episode notes on my website. Uh, It's over at The Drive. It's written by Edward Niedermeyer. Uh, If that name sounds familiar, it's because he recently wrote the the book, the new book on Tesla called Ludicrous. I do have it sitting on my desk, and I'm very much eager to pick it up and actually start reading it, and hopefully we'll do so sooner rather than later. Apparently, he's made quite a name for himself by virtue of being rather outspoken against Tesla, I I think that's the, the general perception of him anyway. And there's an article here. So the title is Silicon Valley's Anti-Autonomy Backlash is Afraid of the Wrong Things. It's it's an interesting read. Um, I'll encourage you to, to give it a read. I frankly disagree. Uh, and again, just to be really transparent, I am a fan of Tesla. I am a fan of, of Elon but not in a blind sort of way, just because I genuinely believe, first of all, that the 
that they're really going about this the correct way, never mind some occasional lapses in judgment perhaps and some potential risk, uh, and putting aside for a moment my big philosophical outlook on life generally that in order to really affect truly massive widespread change for the better for humanity, you do need to take a lot of risks. This is just a fact, and I firmly believe that. Maybe it's from eight years of running startups, which are all about risk, but I, I just... Okay, so there's that. The, the, the other the other point, of course, is that at this point, it seems to me to be just basic game theory that you kind of shouldn't bet against Elon. Uh, I mean, look at the sheer number and magnitude of things that he's accomplished. Okay, maybe nothing's ever really on time and things go wrong here and there, but at the end of the day, I mean, show me one other person who's accomplished more than he has in the last, I don't know, several decades at least. But putting aside any sort of perceived Tesla or Elon fanboyism, as it were, um, look, there's, to, to be clear, I think we can all agree you can be a fan of a thing without necessarily being sort of sort of ridiculously fanatical, as it were. Uh, there's a, there's a difference. Um, but so so putting that aside, though, here's the kind of the point of the article. Unless I've missed something entirely, in which case, hey Edward, by all means, reach out. And frankly, it'd be really cool to have you on this podcast, discuss this. Look, here, here's the general point, right? So I'm sure you've read about, and I, I've certainly read this as well, but I've never discussed it on the podcast because frankly, to quote a certain Mr. Rhett Butler, I just couldn't give a damn. There's apparently a lot of folks in Silicon Valley who really just aren't too much of a fan of, say, Waymo's Chrysler Pacificas running around all over the place with their funky apparatus blossoming out the top of the vehicles and so forth. Um, I guess they get annoyed the way they drive. And we've, we've heard similar reports coming out of Arizona, right, where people just get annoyed behind these cars, that they kind of dawdle, they take forever to make left-hand turns especially, and they're just generally frustrating to have out and about on public roads. If I'm understood correctly, though, Edward's point in this article is that Frankly, the the frustrations, the distaste for, the dislike for, say, Waymo's vehicles in particular, is misplaced. Especially when, on the other hand, the uh, all these residents of, say, Silicon Valley of, of Arizona are totally turning a blind eye to the just the, the incredibly large number of Teslas that effectively do blend into the surrounding. Uh, the roads and the cars around because yeah, everybody has a Tesla in Silicon Valley. I have this funny fake memory actually quite a few years back already where I was on a freeway somewhere in Silicon Valley and next to me were something like, I want to say something like three or four Teslas and several Chevy volts or, or even bolts maybe. Um, and of course a bunch of Priuses, but it was just pretty amazing to see the sheer number of such, vehicles on the road. The the point being, I should say Edward's point being that you've got a bunch of folks who are upset with Waymo for testing, but they're otherwise totally okay with, or at least turning a blind eye towards Tesla. Well, why is that? Is it because Teslas are everywhere? And so it makes it easier to turn a blind eye with some sort of implication that, oh, because something is everywhere, then it's, it's accepted. And it's accepted because it's completely safe. And that's the end of it. Nothing can go wrong. But meanwhile, we've got this totally funky looking Chrysler Pacifica minivan by Waymo, and it just looks weird, and it drives weird, and therefore we're not okay with it. And his whole point is that this is a really flawed bit of reasoning, because Waymo, at least by his own judgment, is frankly doing things 
correctly, or at least less incorrectly than Tesla by virtue of the way they go about from a safety point of view, ensuring that things just don't go wrong. And oh, by the way, look what happened with Uber in Arizona. And, you know, shortly after this podcast launched, that was one of the biggest stories. In fact, I guess by the human tragedy metric, that was, of course, the largest story that indeed it was the first human death caused by a semi-autonomous vehicle. In that case, of course, the backup human driver didn't take over as as it, sh- as, uh, it should have done. Um, so, so, so anyway, so there's this, there's this perception though, that, that apparently Waymo are, um, yeah, that Waymo testing their funky looking vehicles are sort of this big problem and this big hassle. But meanwhile, Tesla, are, you know, they're, nobody cares. Everybody should have a Tesla and everybody's happy with Tesla and Tesla can do no wrong. And Elon is God living here. I have to say that is kind of the perception, but to a certain extent, I agree with it. Edward's point in his article is that it's it's misplaced because Waymo, in his opinion, are going about everything correctly from a safety point of view. Tesla are not pushing these ever-evolving, fast-tracked deployments of Tesla's autopilot system into everybody's hands. The recently announced and deployed Enhanced Summon, which everybody is testing in every parking lot across the country. By the way, mark my words... Granted, these parking lots are all or almost all privately owned, of course, so the, the rules can be set by the owners of those of those parking lots. Mark my words, we're going to start seeing a lot of signs going up very, very soon. No enhanced summon of Tesla or other such vehicles permitted in this parking lot. If you do, we will call the police, blah, blah, blah. I will be very surprised if this does not occur. Anyway, the, the, the point is, is that so... That the Tesla are actually going about everything all wrong, and that it's at best disingenuous to market the technology that they have, and at worst, it's severely, severely risking people's lives. Right? He goes on further to explain that that the argument that the sooner we can get even flawed semi-autonomous and eventually fully autonomous systems on the road. The argument that the sooner we can get them on the road, the better, because even if they end up taking some lives on net, they will help reduce the number of lives lost due to human-driven cars. His argument is that that's just not fair. You can't make that argument. It's not right. It's just categorically wrong on its face. Um, in fact, he even goes on with this pretty grim analogy saying, and I quote here, If an AV accelerated into a crowd of people, it would be justified if it led to a decrease in human-caused fatalities. I I don't even know what to say to this. I mean, if you, if, if, uh, yeah, I I guess if we, if we fully embody the emotional response to all this, then yes, of course, that somehow just isn't okay. But if we're talking just purely objectively, if we're, purely talking about the loss of human life here. Here, let's look at upper and lower bounds, as is always the good way. Let's look at the constraints of this problem, right? So if if we had a situation where we could, you know, let, let's say that like if every car on the road were a Tesla and it reduced the number of lives lost to automobile accidents to zero, right? But let's suppose that one day a Tesla does indeed autonomously drive into and into a crowd of people and it kills, I don't know, 10 people or a hundred people or a thousand people. But then for the rest of the year, no people die on American roads, at least by, by a vehicle ever again. That's it. That's the end of it. 
It seems to me that if you extend this article to its logical conclusion, then it must be the case that that is a suboptimal solution. Namely, if Teslas are everywhere, and if they have reduced the number of road deaths to zero, but if it's the case that a Tesla semi-autonomously drives into a crowd of people and kills a bunch of people, then suddenly Tesla has become the most evil thing in the world, and it must not be allowed on the streets. I can't wrap my head around that conclusion. Now, I get it. That's kind of a ridiculous way to look at this. Okay, I'm taking like you know, the extreme limits here, but that's kind of the point that I'm getting at, because if we agree that that probably, um, you know, that, that, that conclusion is probably okay, then where's that crossover point, right? So how much to, to what, what kind of reduction in the number of lives lost caused by human driven cars do we need to see before we're kind of okay with, Oh, well, crap, this car just drove into a crowd of people and killed a bunch of people. You know, I'm not trying to make light of this. Obviously, that's not the point. On the contrary, I'm trying to make light of the fact that in this article, Edward is suggesting that, you know, it is not, in fact, the absolute number of lives lost. I don't know about you, but to me, the notion of losing a 9-11 number of lives every single month in the U.S., to me, that's just not okay. And so if we can reduce that number further, I mean, look, how is this different to airplanes, Right. The number of lives lost due to commercial air travel is vanishingly small. Yes, of course, whenever there is an airplane crash, it makes the news because it's so rare. And because indeed, in one little aluminum tube with wings, we have just lost 150 or 350 passengers. I get it. That's a big deal. But nobody ever stopped and said, oh, look, well, we've just lost 300 people in this tube with wings. I guess airplanes are not safe. It just doesn't make any sense. We wouldn't use that argument, and we don't use that argument for airplanes, so why are we using it for, for autonomous cars? Okay, well, I guess then the real argument is, oh, well, because it's, it's not just that, okay, we're not okay with autonomous cars causing accidents and deaths in the future once the technology has been perfected. But right now, in this interim phase, using humans as guinea pigs, as it were, that's what's not okay. So it's like this, this sort of subjective argument that says, oh, because we think that the testing is not yet sufficiently uh, accomplished and because it's effectively still ongoing, then it's not okay. So just to be clear, if the testing is still not okay, if the testing is still not complete, and if the number of deaths is brought down substantially, then that's still not sufficient. I don't know. I, I just, I think it's really popular to pick on great success, especially when that great success comes out of seemingly nowhere. And especially when great success is such a staggeringly high outlier, right? Tesla is, by pretty much every objective metric, something like five to seven years ahead of its closest competitor by every single metric. It's very cool to pick on them. Um, Look, I don't think that they're perfect. I don't think that Elon's perfect. I just think that they're doing the most, the quickest, and the most effectively. That's all. So, I don't know. I get this is a really pretty contentious issue, which is good. That's that's actually why I've gone on talking about this far longer than I intended. But yeah, just look, head over to the, go to the drive.com, search for this article. Again, it's called Silicon Valley's Anti-Autonomy Backlash is Afraid of the Wrong Things. Give it a read. Let's discuss it. Let me know what you think, because I'm very eager to hear more thoughts on this. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, so to round things out for this week. Um, yeah, okay, so there's an article over on TechCrunch. Uh, I guess today's episode is all about articles. Um, there's an article on TechCrunch. Uh, let's see, part of Disrupt 2019. It's by Josh Constein. So it's titled, We'll Have Self-Flying Cars Before Self-Driving Cars. And this is, of course, according to Sebastian Thrun. He is Google's self-driving team founder, or I should say was, and he more recently has become CEO of a flying vehicle startup called, I mean, this name is just too cool, called Kitty Hawk. For those of you not connecting the dots, Kitty Hawk, of course, was where the Wright brothers first flew their first airplane. So so basically he makes the claim that, yeah, we're going to, well, his exact quote is worth reading verbatim. I believe we're going to be done with self-flying vehicles before we're done with self-driving cars. I like that word choice of we're done. Um, look, I get it. I, I totally get it. There's this There's this perceived notion that obviously self-flying vehicles should be much easier to accomplish than self-driving vehicles because obviously when you're up there in the air, well, there's not too many things that can go wrong. I mean, as I always like joke, if, so- if something goes wrong, there's only one way you can go and that's down. I mean, there's nothing you can crash into. There's nothing you can hit. There's no pedestrians. There's no crazy bicyclists. There's nothing, right? And clearly we've seen how well the air, you know, the the, the sky works for, for aircraft, right? I mean, again, the safest place you can be within the globe, air travel, the safest form of travel of any sort whatsoever, including walking. Um, and yeah, the reason we've had largely essentially fully autonomous aircraft for like the last 40 years is because, yeah, it was a relatively easy nut to crack. Self-driving cars, on the other hand, obviously much more difficult. And so so I get this this argument. I get this. Um, I'm going to toss this into the so what category of things. I just don't think this is a claim that really matters. Putting aside the very real fact that just having a bunch of things buzzing about your head everywhere all the time would just be damned annoying. It's going to be noisy. It's going to be just, it's going to be windy when they're trying to come down everywhere. And yet, even if we have dedicated parking spots, landing spots, I guess, for these things, it's just going to be annoying. As rightfully pointed out in this brief article, personal helicopters aren't even allowed in California's wine country. So Napa, Napa, California apparently doesn't allow personal helicopters. They're noisy and annoying. So obviously here the idea is to have electric to have electric vehicles. So really just giant human sized drones. Yeah, but have you even heard just a regular drone? Besides the fact they're just kind of creepy. I don't know why, but they just kind of are. They, they make this really annoying buzzing sound. They're just not very pleasant. So now just imagine like a really big one. I don't know, I'm guessing the the sound would be rather, I guess at a lower frequency due to the larger rotors, I suppose. It would be less buzzy and more kind of, I don't know, thrumming, I suppose. But look, this would just be kind of annoying. And But even that's not the point. Even that's what I think, 
you know, is not what I think really matters. Here's why it doesn't matter. It's because I, I'm not even going to take issue with whether self-flying cars will be here at some point. And I agree. Let's stop calling them self-flying cars. As correctly called here, due to the fact that they're electric, they're e-VTOLs. So a VTOL, V-T-O-L, is uh, vertical takeoff and landing. Right? So an e-VTOL, of course, is electric um, vertical takeoff and landing. Um, I, I don't doubt that these will be here in some form or another at some point. In fact, as an aviation fanatic, I can't wait. That'll be super cool. I'll be one of the first ones on it. But to argue that we're going to have them and that we're going to be done with self-flying vehicles before self-driving cars, that only matters in the context of the engineering itself. And that's what I mean when I say, so what? To me, what means done isn't just done in an engineering sense. It's done in a, um, in a deployment sense. It's done in the sense that these are a thing we've got everywhere. So, so here's what I mean. I would say that I would say that electric cars are very close to being done. And when I say very close, what I mean is it's now easy for you or I to, sorry, for you or for me to just walk into a Tesla dealership and buy a Tesla or lease a Tesla. It's very easy. Anyone can go do this now if they have the financial means. I guess one of the biggest obstacles besides the finances, of course, is say whether you can install a an electric car charger in your home or apartment, because if you can't, that kind of really lessens the desirability. It's why we haven't gotten one yet. It's just, it, it, it would be a bit of a hassle, but my point is Tesla electric cars are here, right? And they charge quickly and they have really good range now. So by those metrics, electric cars are kind of done. Sure. They're just going to keep getting better and better, but they're effectively done. Meaning the technology is there and they are readily available to the public. When we have self-flying vehicles, I don't, it's kind of one of two things. Either it's not gonna really be done in the sense that it'll be available to the whole public kind of easily everywhere all the time. Alternatively though, it's the point that even if it were available, um, it would still be kind of a sporadic thing. It'd be kind of here and there and, you know, so what? What really matters is, is there a self-driving tech which everyone can have access to all the time? That's what's going to matter. So even if you have self-flying vehicles that are available sooner, so what? It's not going to be a thing that everyone can take advantage of all of the time and in all locations. So I think it's just kind of a silly point to make. It's a silly argument. I Again, will the engineering be ready? Sure, probably. In fact, we could probably do it now today and be done with it. Um, but for me, for a thing to be truly done, it needs to check off the following boxes. Is the engineering done? Is it readily available to everybody? If you can't check both those boxes, then I just don't really think it matters. So anyway, those are my thoughts on self-flying cars or EV tolls, whatever you want to call them. By all means, bring them on. Just why compare them to self-driving cars? It just doesn't make any sense. It's there's just no point to make that comparison. It's, there's no there's no relevance is, is what I'm trying to say. So there you have it. And on that bombshell, um, that is a wrap for today and indeed this week. So thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful weekend. I'll see you back here next week. That'll be on Tuesday. Take care. Bye-bye.